Welcome to the School of Travels podcast. I'm your host, Becky Gillespie, and each week I bring you stories of how travel can truly change your life if you take the chance to get out on the road and step out of your comfort zone. My guests also share travel tips and lessons they've learned along the way, which I hope inspires you to let travel be your teacher. Hello, listeners. Welcome back for another edition of the School of Travels podcast. Today, I would like to introduce you to one of the rarest of creatures you will find on the digital nomad scene, a Japanese digital nomad. A friend of mine recently introduced me to Akina Shu, a nomad from Yokohama, Japan, who has made it her mission to introduce the concept of digital nomadism to Japanese companies. Having an interest in learning English since university, Akina has also started her own podcast, Nomad University, which we have put a link to on the schooloftravels.com. Akina and I will discuss Japanese work culture and also what made her finally do that most unusual of things in a country obsessed with work quit her job, leave the office, and get on the road. Within the first three months of her journey, Akina had already visited five continents. How did she do it? Let's get into her story right now to find out. Welcome to episode 73 of the School of Travels podcast. Today, I am so excited to return to my Japanese roots with my new friend, Akina Shu. Akina, welcome to the podcast. Yay, thank you for having me. Thank you for coming onto the show. I, you are the rarest of creatures, a Japanese <laughs> digital nomad. I really want to talk with you about this today because when I heard, I almost didn't believe it. I said, is she just on vacation from Japan? <laughs> But no, yeah. you're real. You're a real nomad. <laughs> yeah, I've never seen any other nomads Japanese in Buenos Aires, even though I stay in here for four months. So I guess I'm the rarest creature, I guess. <laughs> Certainly a rare creature. So we have to find out how you got onto the digital nomad scene and what makes yeah. you special that you're able to do this. So first of all, Asuna, yeah. can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Yes. So I'm Akina from Japan. And then I started this digital nomads lifestyle since 2019. And ever since then, it's been three years and I've traveled 39 countries in total. But before that, I was actually working for the Japanese companies for eight years. So from the you know nine to five work to this completely different lifestyle. So it was a really, really huge change for me. Wow. Okay. First of all, I want to ask you, which part of Japan are you from? I'm originally from Yokohama, but I used to live in Tokyo for 10 years for my work. So yeah, I'm from quite big city. Okay. And I'm going to ask you like some things about your background so to kind of give me an idea of maybe what it took for you to get out of the mold, the Japanese normal society. So first of yeah. all, can you tell me a little about a, a little bit about your family or what did your parents do for work or what were their backgrounds? Sure. So actually both of my parents are Chinese, but I was born and raised in Japan. So I call myself Japanese because my ethnicity is Chinese, but nationality is Japanese. So I think with that 
um, background, I've been always looking for somewhere that I feel sense of belongingness, like where I feel comfortable to be there. So I guess like that's actually another huge part of me to start this lifestyle. Well, that makes sense. So did your parents come to Japan um, looking for work and, and you were born in Japan? Yeah, so um, back then, I think um, in China, there was a cultural revolution so that a lot of well-educated people are actually forced to do the labor works in Mongolia. And then my parents thought they wouldn't have a brighter future if they stay in China so that they wanted to find a better quality of life. So they decided to move to Japan and then that's where they, I mean, have me. So I personally um, lived in Japan most of my time in my life. So I had a like identity crisis when I was little, but I guess with that background, actually I'm traveling around the world and then I feel like I'm more global citizens. That makes a lot of sense. And I can understand that your parents looked for a new place to live where they felt they could make a life. And, and now, as you said, you want to do the same or you felt called to do the same. Yeah. And you said, and you said you had a a kind of identity crisis when you were younger. Was this like, as you were kind of in school and going through school and looking for what you wanted to do? Yeah. So I would say, um, Japan is really beautiful country. Like a lot of people would love to go to Japan. It's one of the dream country for lots of people. I accept that. Then I also like Japan, but at the same time, I feel Japan doesn't have um, enough diversities in terms of especially human races. So that 99% appeal like Japanese so that they kind of not really ready to accept someone different so that um, they unconsciously probably like look at you like foreigner so that I got bullied when I was little and then I was told to go back to China when I was little and then whenever I go to China they told me to go back to Japan so I was having this like super super bad identity crisis up until I studied abroad in Hawaii that's where I met lots of like you know diversities and then I felt like I can be just by myself and then like be international person. Then I started feeling like I'm more comfortable to be in abroad, like where diversity exists so that I feel like this is my second home or yeah. That really makes a lot of sense. Um, And for the listeners out there who are not aware, I actually lived in Japan in Tokyo as well. For 12 years. And yeah. uh, I, I can understand. I also worked in some schools as a teacher. And I mm-hmm. saw firsthand how Japanese children can treat each other. And especially people that are not from Japan who are students in the mm-hmm. school. It's it's yeah. a it's a really deep set, like you said, almost subconscious or unconscious thing that, you know, it's mm-hmm. such a homogenous society that yeah. you that, you know, they're just a lot of children, young, young children are not even used to seeing, like you said, someone who is not Japanese born. Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, I think it's almost also our a human, human nature to kind of, you know, notice a, the other someone different from your group and have mm-hmm. like a reaction. Um, we hope it's positive. But yeah, I witnessed some bullying myself in some of these schools. So I understand mm-hmm where you're coming from. And it's hard, I think, for people who 
you know, I know many people have been bullied when they were young also, mm-hmm. but it's, it's hard to almost understand unless you've been in such a homogenous society, how this, how this can feel. And so many things across the, the culture play out yeah. because of how similar everyone is and, and how there's a yeah. lack of diversity, like you said. Exactly. Yeah. I've also seen a lot of actually international people who lived in Japan more than 10 years. Like you also stay there for 12 years, but they still feel like they're not like, they can't be like truly Japanese, even though they spent much longer time there. So I think like, I'm really hoping that Japan would be more like open-minded and also more diversities so that they can like, you know, have broader mind to accept like differences. So I think that's one of the reasons I also started this like podcast, like, you know, diversities through stories. So that's like my mission for me. Yeah. Yeah. You have a podcast yourself called Nomad University. And I love how how we have a similar, we had a similar thought when we came up with our names. I'm a school, you're a university, but we're all trying to broadcast this message of, you know, what you can discover as you travel and how it can help you broaden your mind. And okay, so I want to go back to, you said you met, you studied abroad in Hawaii and what did you study in university? What were you planning to do? So my my major in university in Japan was actually environmental information. So I used to study like environmental policies or even coding. So at that time, I actually wanted to study oceanography in in Hawaii because it's known for it. But then I realized at that time, like I couldn't really speak English. And then all the classes in oceanography is more likely like physics in English. So it was like a double punch for me. Like I couldn't understand at all. Then I realized that Hawaii is also known for uh, bilingual and linguistics because there's so many diversities, like with so many international background people are there. Then I kind of switched my major to second language studies. And then ever since then, I'm, I, I really love this, like learning language, like second language and yeah. That's why after I came back to Japan, I actually worked for the English education field for eight years. Okay. And what kind of things did you, did you do there? Is, is this, as you said, you were working for Japanese companies for eight years. I guess that's, you were based in in English education. Okay. That's a big, I can say uh, firsthand also, that's a huge industry in Japan. Yeah, for sure. Like if you can speak English, a good English, I think like you can find jobs in Japan quite easily because a lot of Japanese would like to improve their English, but they're kind of like suffering. So yeah, English is kind of like good skill if you want to survive in Japan. (laughs) Yeah. For those of you listening as well, and you've, if you've been interested in living in Japan and you're a native English speaker with a college degree, you may be able to get a one-year work visa to start in Japan pretty easily uh, if you find the right company. But of course, you Mm -hmm. have to have a degree and you have to be a native speaker who's had, I think that it was 12 years minimum of education in in English, which usually was high school. It was all the way up through high school. But um, Mm -hmm. I got that question a lot. People were trying to move to Japan, but they didn't have a degree 
And unfortunately, yeah. I think Japan still requires that. So, mm. but I, I I saw many、um, native English speakers started as a English teacher for the first year, and then they fell in love with Japan, and then they got married to Japanese, and then they stayed there forever. So it might happen. So yeah, we never know. Yeah, I will say too.、Uh, speaking again from personal experience, a lot of people that does happen, and you you just don't expect it. But what can happen as well is you get trapped only in English education as your job、yeah. there if you don't learn the language fluently. And even if you do, as we were talking about, there can be a lot of discrimination about your abilities to work in a Japanese company, especially one of the high level Japanese companies. Yeah. That's true. So I'm wondering、uh, what what was if you could you describe some of the typical stereotypes, I guess, or what what you experienced yourself in a Japanese workday? Because a lot of people <laughs> have heard Japanese people work all the time. I think maybe <laughs> they imagine they live in the office. But what is work the work culture really like in Japan? Well, so I've been traveling around the world for the past three years, and then whenever I tell、um, my international friends that I'm from Japan, they always tell me, "Oh, you're from Japan. You must work a lot. Like you must be workaholic, or like you know, committing suicide, or something." Like there is a word、uh, for overworking and dies, like karoshi. So I guess like a typical image toward Japanese company is always like working, working, and workaholic. And I think like it's partially true.、Um, most of my friends actually work from like eight a.m. till the last train, which is like one a.m. or two a.m. sometimes. And then for myself, I used to work for like twenty days in a row, and、um, I just realized that most of us live to work, not like work to live. So people. Always work to make sure that after the age of sixty, they will have plenty of time and money to travel around. But the fact is, after you become sixty, you will probably have not like as energetic as twenties or thirties to travel around the world. So, but I guess like eighty percent of us think that we're gonna work till. Sixty or eighties, then we will have free time. That's like a typical Japanese culture work, like work culture. I think it was quite typical in the U.S. until about let's、mm-hmm. say it started to change around. I would say ten years ago. So it,、mm-hmm. that's that's not, I guess, so uncommon for some developed countries with、mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of big companies. But I think that, like you said, this dedication to working to live. Is、yeah. or living to work, I should say,、um, yeah. is yeah, is a real focus in Japan. And I personally saw so many people coming back on the last train, which, as you said, is around one、yeah. a.m. to their、yeah. to their homes. And a lot of、yeah. people also, because of the train system, they would be on the train for four hours a day. They would commute <laughs> two hours one way from a suburb <laughs> in Tokyo. That's actually me. That's actually me. I used to commute like. Two hours one way. That was insane. Most of my life was on the train. Like imagine four hours round trip a day times five equals 
20 hours a week times four, like 80 hours a month, you're on a train. Am I correct? 80 hours? Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I've done that. <laughs> so I have to ask, what did you do on the train for four hours a day? Like how in the world did you pass your time? I think I, I either I read the book, if Evening Rush in Japan is like insane. Like 200% of people would ride on the train and then it's just like super packed. So usually I couldn't get a seat. Then I, I just listen to music or yeah, sometimes. Yeah. If I can get a seat, just read a book and sleep. And if I had to stand and I can't really move because of the pack, I just could only listen to music. So that's pretty much it. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I have to say, like, I usually didn't have to take the last train. So I was lucky it wasn't that packed for me yeah. when I would go back. But I, yeah. I I just remember it's it's always like usually standing um, yeah. during the work day, during the weekdays. Yeah. Um, but I will say one thing people may not know is that the trains are, are very safe in Japan for the most part. And yeah. I would, I would actually open my laptop on subway trains and work on the train, uh, uh if I didn't need an internet connection. And, and there often was an internet connection that was pretty stable, but you know, mm-hmm. it, and in Portugal where I live now, I have never done that. I don't trust that I, my laptop will be safe the whole time. Even if it might be, I don't want to risk it. But in Japan, I had this sense that, yeah, why not work on the train as well? Work, 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 work. And I definitely became a workaholic while I was there. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. It's like a culture, kind of like an invisible social pressure that people need to work. And um, it's also kind of like a virtue, virtue, like people think it's a beauty that if you work longer, then people respect them because they work long. But I guess we're not really caring about efficiency. We do care about like how much time we spend on rather than like productivity. So uh, for me, it wasn't really my style. (laughs) Yeah, this is the other thing people think, oh, they're working so much, they're getting so much done. But no, like the productivity, I think for all humans probably goes down after, I want to say four hours. And yeah, for me, it's like 15 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you've changed, Dakina, you have changed. (laughs) I need to take a break every 15 minutes. (laughs) Yeah, but it's like, and everybody probably needed to in that office, but they, let's talk for a minute about the the culture with the boss, because I had never encountered this, but I heard, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that the bosses, a lot of employees will not leave until their boss leaves the office. (laughs) Yeah, I think some companies do have this culture. Uh, Luckily, like my companies didn't really have it because like I had a lot of native English speakers, co-workers. So once the clock ticked the like, you know, 530, then we just leave. Like for me, like I usually like taking long vacation and then like um, leave the office kind of on sharp. That's kind of like, you know, becoming my characteristics so that people would know me like, ah, she usually takes long leaves and then like she usually goes home on time. 
But um, I do also see some of my coworkers actually do care about the boss is not leaving, then they're not leaving. <laughs> but it's it's a strange culture. I don't know why. Um, I think it's saving face, like keeping the face, you know, yeah. is so important there. And I, I yeah. also heard that it, even if the boss would leave, and then you yeah. would leave if the boss was leaving and they said, I want to go to the bar and talk about a project or then we go to <laughs> karaoke. They would follow their boss to all of these events. Also saving face, making it seem yeah. like they're involved but, and they care, you know, but they didn't want to. to. Like that. It used to be like that. But I guess like recently for the younger generation, they don't really want to drink anymore. Like, so that like the boss kind of feels sad because the generation has changed. Like the boss's generation, probably they had to go to drink a lot and then talk about work. But then like recently, the younger generation actually declined the boss's offers a lot to go to drink. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah, yeah, it's a good trend, I guess. I do think things in the last, I want to say, five years have started to change dramatically in Japan. Yeah, yeah. One thing I don't know is how the pandemic has affected Japan, because I I spent seven months of the pandemic in Japan, but it was still early. It was in the early part of 2020. So now there's been a couple of years. I wonder if more people are allowed to stay working from home. And it maybe it yeah. will be permanent. I'm not sure it will be permanent or not, because, you know, this like Japanese culture is kind of a route that a lot of companies would actually want employees to come to the office and then work. But um, a lot of IT companies or I would say like e-commerce companies actually allow started allowing employees to work anywhere in Japan, like starting from Japan. And then I also know like one company actually allows employees to work from abroad, like anywhere. So that one of my friend is actually doing this workation, work plus vacation in Japan. And then he was trying to go to uh, Dubai or like Turkey, I don't know, depending on the country, because some companies think that some countries are too dangerous to stay. So there is like a list of the countries that people can go. But I think it's becoming more remote work friendly environment, definitely compared to before the pandemic. That's really interesting that they, they want to know first where you're going. And second, yeah, yeah, if they like, oh, no, you can't go there. It's almost like they're (laughs) kind of like your parents. (laughs) It's not, (laughs) you you know, (laughs) It's still I mean, like you don't like, have individual per- responsibility. It's like it goes true. back to them. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I think they still have to adjust themselves in the rule, in the box that the company gave them. But still, I think the box is becoming bigger, starting from only Japan to maybe like some safe countries that they think. So, yeah, I think it's a good trend and it's a good change. But I do also see a lot of companies still like, not allowing any employees to work remotely so that employees started looking for the remote job. So I think it's also a very big change for Japanese employees to realize that people actually can work anywhere. So I think it's a big change. Yeah. 
Yeah, given this change, do you expect even more English education to happen in Japan? Yeah, so I actually see so many digital, like Japanese digital nomads who don't speak English at all, but they still enjoy being a nomad in abroad. But others also recognize that they wish they could speak better English so that they are trying to improve their English by joining online course or English classes. So I guess. You know, there are always, you know, two parties. Like, one is like, you know, like, even though you don't speak English, you can still enjoy. So, whatever. The other is like, realize that, like, like me for right now, if I don't speak Spanish living in Latin America, it's a little bit tough. And then I recognize I really want to learn Spanish. But some other people, like, they're, they're fine. Like, they're fine with not being able to speak Spanish. So, there is always like, you know, Different opinions. Right. That's a good comparison. I'm, I'm so excited to see what happens when the Japanese borders fully open again. And if, you know, pe- mm. more workers will, will be able to go out, or if Japan yeah. really does start to change some of its work culture for yeah. good. Yeah. Well, let's talk now because you mentioned you're in Latin America. I want to find out what made you finally leave the English company and get out onto the road yeah so there are two main reasons the first is that I had a surgery on my left eye twice so I was on a wheelchair and crutch for six months in total but during that time I wasn't allowed to work remotely so I had to still commute to the work uh, to the office with wheelchair and crutches. So at that time, I was like, okay, when it's rain, it was really hard because like, if I want to find a taxi, use the app to um, find a taxi. But like when it's raining, you know, everybody wants to ride on a taxi. So it was, it took me sometimes like an hour to get a taxi. And also it was super slippery. So sometimes I fail or like even I was using crutches on the train. <laughs> no Japanese gave me seats. <laughs> so I was like, okay, like I wish I could work remotely because it was a publisher's work or, you know, editing work. I could do it from my home and I didn't see the point of going to office. So that was my first reason. And the second reason was because um, after I recovered from this surgery, uh, my mom was um, diagnosed as a cancer and then she went through a ear treatment, but unfortunately um, she couldn't make it. So I just realized that um, life is really, really too short. And I guess um recently people like it used to be like you know kids uh live with grandparents and then when they were little or teenager or when it becomes like you know early 20s like they see you know actually people are you know dying but like recently because we only live with just like parents not to see grandparents or grand grandparents not often so that we don't really have a you know a moment to see actually people are dying so that we always imagine that we as if like we would live forever and then I was also like that you know I never expected that I'm gonna die or it's just a weird like imagination but but when I see my mom then I just realized that um why I am working for the company and um 
you know, controlling my feeling, like real feeling that I really want to travel around the world. And imagine like for the rest of 40 years, if you're stuck in the office, then your life will be over. So I was like, it sounds a little bit like exaggerated, but that's how I felt. So I think those two reasons are really big triggers for me to start this journey. Those are such powerful reasons. And I'm so glad you listened to your heart and you took action. Yeah. I think people sometimes they get a feeling and, and they don't take action. And so I, I'm so glad you were able to do that. Yeah, that's true. Because like those kind of feelings would fade out if you take too long to take an action. So for for me, I took an action like maybe within six months after I had these two big incidents in my life. So yeah. Okay. So and did I've you never to- regret it. <laughs> so you started, yeah. did you start looking for the work that you were going to do on the road before you left? So um, before I left, I applied for the Peace Boat. Have you ever heard of that? I applied. I applied for the Peace Boat Ah, way, way, way back when. I want to say it was like 2006 or something. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. So I applied for that. And if you got accepted as an interpreter, then you will get a free ride to travel around the world. So I was like, okay, I've been always wanting to do this. So why not applying for it? And if I got accepted, it's a sign that I, I'm going to leave my company and then think later what I want to do after traveling around the world. Cause you might get to see different kinds of people, not like, you know, employees anymore. So I applied for it and then I got accepted and then I'm like, okay, I'm going to resign. I mean, I said I will graduate from being employee to the company. And then I gave them, you know, um, resignation, um, the paper and then I just left. That is so amazing. And congratulations on getting to the peace boat. I, I yeah. did not get accepted at the time. I, I think partly because my Japanese skills were not very high at that moment, but I, I, I was so, I thought it's such an amazing opportunity. And, and anyone who's listening, look up the peace boat in Japan. It's basically, I mean, you can actually, can you tell us what is the peace boat? So peace boat is um, organized by non-government organizations. So it's kind of like a nonprofit. And at first, I think two university students um, built this um, peace boat to see the world, what's actually happening, especially like, for example, political issues. Like we see a lot of um, news on the TV, but we never know if it's true or not. Especially recently, there are so many fake news. So that like two university students um, like thought about it and then like built this organization and then started traveling with the boat so that's how it started and then now um because of pandemic i think they stopped it but i'm pretty sure they will start it again once it's like you know um calm down but you get to ride on the cruise world cruise for three months so about 100 days in total and if you work as a volunteer for example um in interpreter or um, cho- like childcare, like babysitting, 
also. And um, yeah, other volunteer works like yoga teacher or salsa teacher, like lecturer. So you get to ride on the free ride to travel around the world for a hundred days. Wow. How was, and, so how was your experience on the peace boat, Akira? So uh, we get to travel around five continents, 20 countries in total, and literally around the world, like um, West, starting from West. So starting from Japan, we went through Asia and Egypt. And then from there, we also went through this like canals and Suez canals, then went to European side, then New York and uh, Jamaica, you know, Caribbeans, and I went through this Panama Canal. Then we also went to Easter Islands. Then we went back to Tokyo, I mean, Yokohama, Japan. So it was like truly amazing experience. But at the same time, I also realized that I, I'm not really good at interpreting. So <laughs> for the first month, I was like, okay, I'm done with my work. Like I, I'm not really enjoying this interpreting work. but I I I did it so next time if I have a chance I would like to write on it as a guest speaker not as interpreter that's one thing for sure (laughs) also uh, yeah I I don't want to work for the trouble agency in my life that's another thing that I learned You're kind of making me feel better that I didn't go on the ship, although three months around the world. I mean, it's it does sound incredible. It just, but if you're working, it can be really hard work as well. Yeah, it's like every day you have to, you know, there are so many events going on and you have to translate everything. Um, but the thing is that there's no internet uh, because we're in the middle of ocean so that you need to rely on this um, electronic dictionary and then you get this draft, but it tends to be really long because usually, you know, an hour or two hours lecture and it has to be related to peace um, related um, lecture. For example, if we're going to Egypt, there'll be one Egyptian uh, peace lawyer will be on the boat and then give us four lectures about peace education in Egypt and imagine like he has Egyptian accent English and then we have to simultaneously inter- need to interpret them in in front of like 300 participants and once you got lost then like it's the end of the world like you'll be silent and then like <laughs> it's just really tough yeah oh I have never even thought about how difficult that really would be but the accent and like you said the the subject matter being in front of everybody, oh, I, a lot of respect yeah. goes out to those people that are simultaneously yeah. interpreting. Yeah, and then sometimes, you know, because the, lec- um, the lecturer is related to the peace education, and then sometimes they talk about the, you know, atomic bomb or the ratio of the, you know, some, some of the terminologies or climate change. And then some lecturers, like they, you know, follow the scripts, but others, you know, mainly just spontaneously talk something new. And then we will be like, wait a second, it's not on script. <laughs> oh, and like you said, no Wi-Fi to check anything. Oh, I can't imagine. Yeah. Yeah. What, so. what, were, what were some highlights for you on that trip? Did you get a chance to see some amazing things yourself? I hope you were not on the boat copying a lecture for too much of the time. 
No, um, the thing is, like, actually, um, I brought my dad as in participant oh, on a peace boat. Yes. So I actually uh, wrote about a picture book about this trip because that was definitely my life changing experience as a like as a first step not to be employee. So since my mom passed away and my dad has been super depressed for the like past two years, then I decided to, you know, apply for the peace boat and then I got accepted. So I decided to leave my work so that I decided to bring my dad with me because I felt he needs new friends or he needs new surroundings to feel better. And he like first time he declined. So I was like, okay, since I'm a free rider, so I can pay my dad's fee. So I paid his fee and I told him later, like, oh, I already paid. So you should come. I mean, you need to come. Otherwise you waste my money. And then he came with me. And then like I was working as a interpreter. So like I, I had a decent like, you know, distance with my dad, but um, my dad made a lot of friends and also he was enjoying and then, yeah. So I think that was like my biggest highlight that my dad is finally happy after my mom's loss. Oh, so what a, what a beautiful story. I'm so glad he, he made those friends and took to the experience. And I'm sure, yeah. as you said, it was life-changing for him and something he's never going to forget. Yeah, I I think that was like, you know, the moment that I felt now it's my turn to travel around the world by myself. So, yeah. Yeah, so you got back to Yokohama. Like, it's it's interesting. You are from Yokohama. That's where the Peace Boat starts and finishes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so you got back. And then when did you get on the road? How much longer did it take before you left Japan and became a true digital nomad? Well, so since after that, um, the pandemic happened. No, actually, like after the boat, I went to Bali. And that's where I met lots of digital nomads. But interestingly, uh, most of them, I guess, like I would say 95% are Western people, even though it's located in Bali, Asia. Mm-hmm. But like instantly when I saw them working from the poolside, half naked, like working from the bed, I was like, wait a second, this is the lifestyle that I want. It looks so amazing. Like, you know. And then I was so shocked. So I started actually interviewing so many random nomads at that time. Like within two weeks, I think I've interviewed more than 30 nomads and then tried to figure out how they became nomads. Then I wanted to start my nomads life, but because of the pandemic, I started traveling around Japan. I'm back to Japan and I started traveling around Japan. Then it took me a year um, since I could go out of Japan. But since last October, I've been out of Japan traveling around the world and I'm truly enjoying it. Oh, so you said 2019, but as the pandemic started, you've really just in the last, I guess, six months or so have really started to enjoy the full life that you can have as a digital nomad. 
Yeah, but even, you know, um, traveling around Japan as a nomad was actually probably a um, good step for me because, you know, um, you know the language, you know the culture, and, but you get to also explore your own country. Even though, like, I was from Japan, most, time, most of the time I was in big cities. So I really enjoyed traveling around Japan to explore the countryside, small town. And it was really nice. And then I realized that I can really work anywhere, anytime, as long as I have my PC and with stable Wi-Fi. So I just bought one-way ticket to Georgia. And ever since then, I've never back to Japan. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Were there any highlights during that time in Japan? There's a small town that you went to, uh, any highlight that really stood out for you? Yeah. So I would say um, Wakayama Prefecture. Have you been there? Yes. Yes, I have. Okay. Yeah. So actually Wakayama Prefecture is known for one of the best um, workation place in Japan because there's like really nice beach, Shirahama but with a very stable Wi-Fi. And there's also um, Kumanokodo. It's like a, um, how do you call it? Then In Spain, there's a San, Camino to Santiago. A pilgrimage route. I actually did part of the Kumanokodo. Ah, nice. Yeah. And then that's like registered as a world heritage. So in um, Wakayama Prefecture, it's just like one hour direct flight from Tokyo. So it's easy access but you get to enjoy both beach and mountain with stable Wi-Fi. And you also get to eat deer's meat or bear's meat, like something unique food. <laughs> so I, I really like enjoying, you know, both beach and mountains and food. So I guess that was one of the best place for me to do workation. Wow. Thank you for the recommendation because that is such an incredible place that really doesn't get enough love from the tourism yeah. boards or it's not on the radar, but it's, it's, there's a real magic down there. Yeah, that's true. And uh, I also have so many other cities that I love in Japan as well. So. Oh, can I you give like... us one more? Give us one more. <laughs> I know, people are obsessed with, with traveling in Japan. <laughs> That's no. true. Um, yeah, I would say I really, because I'm originally from Yokohama, which is a port city. So in Japan, there are like three main port cities, Nagasaki, Kobe, and Yokohama. So I also went to Nagasaki. That's actually where I started this like lifestyle as a nomad. So that's probably one of the reasons that I have like deeper memories in it. So Nagasaki is located in the southern part of Japan in Kyushu area. Have you been there? Yes. I, w I went there only yeah. for a couple of days, but also Gunkanjima. Like that was my oh, tourism yeah. stop. Yeah. The island, yeah. the, that battleship island. Yeah, exactly. So like you said, Nagasaki has lots of history in it. So it was used to be, a, you know, it's still a port, but it used to be a port for um, accepting lots of international cult, like diff, um, people. That's why uh, they have more international vibes. Second biggest Chinatown. Also, um, it's some like Dutch, Dutch and then Portugal, Portuguese culture in it. So the food is kind of mixed of Japanese and Portuguese and, um, and Chinese as well. Plus, it also has like so many small islands, including Gunkanjima. 
so, and, um, there's, uh, you know, um, Hiroshima and Nagasaki are the two cities that we had atomic bombs. So we had the like memorial place to also learn about history. So it has like very international vibes and port and this like history. It's all combined. It's very like comfortable to stay there. So I would also recommend Nagasaki to do the workation as well. I would too. It's a really interesting place. Yeah, I can hear now. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, also, so, okay. Now you are in Buenos Aires. I wanted to talk for just a yep. few minutes about that because I know you've spent four months there now and you're planning <laughs> yeah. to leave soon. So yeah. what, what brought you to Buenos Aires and what were your impressions there? So I was in Georgia for one month and Turkey for three months in November, December-ish. So it's getting cold, colder. So I wanted to go somewhere warm. And Latin America was always one of my dream destination because it's just so far away from Japan. But when I checked the flight ticket from Turkey, it seems like really, really reasonable. And then one of my um, guest speaker from my podcast uh posted a lot on his Instagram story. And then that actually inspired me to go there. And then I, when I checked the weather, it looks super sunny. So I was like, okay, I'm going to Buenos Aires. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I was down yeah. there. I, I shared with you before too, that I was down there. I think we missed each other by a few weeks, but it really yeah. was a huge spot for digital nomads when they opened in yeah. November. Yeah. It's truly a mecca for digital nomads, especially uh, mainly uh, Western European and American because of the time differences work for them. But still, like for me, it's just like amazing. Again, Buenos Aires has this diversity, this international vibe, good food, good restaurants, good weather. And the cost of living is also very reasonable because of the blue dollar. So it's it's just like so perfect. <laughs> yeah, I love that it's a, a very large city as well. It kind of reminded me a bit of Tokyo in that it just kept going yeah. and going as a city and it was yeah. nice and flat as well. I appreciated walking around there. Yeah. I would recommend it to anyone. That's true. Yeah, easy to walk and in big parks and um, many co-working spaces as well. So it's yeah, I just fell in love with Buenos Aires. I mean, Argentina in general. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that you also appreciate this city. I've been there five times now and it's it <laughs> never gets old for me. <laughs> yeah, I, I have a feeling that I will definitely come back here because like I'm already missing Argentina, even though I'm still here. I'm, I mean, I bought a flight ticket to go to a different country in two weeks but you know within this two weeks i will be missing here already <laughs> it has that effect on people yeah oh, i did want to ask what are you doing now for your work as a digital nomad yeah so i do several things so i do um podcast and i have my website and um i also do uh kind of um, giving a talk about this lifestyle to Japanese companies or travel agencies because right now Japanese companies and age travel agencies are actually seeking for international people like tourism coming back after the COVID. And then they 
want them to stay longer. So, but they're not really familiar with this lifestyle. So that I actually give them a talk about this. And um, I also have some publishers work because I used to work at a publisher and they still give me job. And I also do a web consultant to the local business in Japan. And um, I used to write a landing page as a copywriter, but I'm not doing it anymore because I prefer talking. <laughs> That's why I started podcast. And I also do investment, for example, real estate, stock, um, trading. So my ideal will be like 50-50. I think you've really highlighted here how when you start as a digital nomad, it's great. Like take some of what you've already been doing. If you've already got a job that was paying you before, like a publisher, perhaps you can start with that and then do a lot of different things if you're interested in them. And you never know what one of those things can lead to, to keep you going. Cause it it is, it it can be a challenge sometimes to keep going and, and funding yourself when you're no longer this one big company, for example, but it's possible mm. as we've seen on both of our podcasts, it's so possible. Yeah, that is true. Like, I guess like 90% of the people aspiring to be nomads are afraid of the, afraid of losing stable income. So, but like, especially if you're from, let's say United States or Japan, because the cost of the living in their countries are quite expensive compared to other countries. So you actually spend less money compared to live in your own country. So that actually helps you a lot. So you don't have to make a lot of money like you used to live in your own country. For example, if you have a work in Japan or United States and you can work from like anywhere, but you still get paid with yen or dollars. And then that actually helps us to live in um country, which is more reasonable. For example, like Buenos Aires is much cheaper compared to Japan and United States. So there is a huge gap between your, you know, what you used to spend, like the expenses. So yeah, find a good country and then you would spend less and you don't have to pressure yourself to make a lot of money anymore. Yeah, I think in fact, that was why I decided to become a digital nomad after Japan because I thought, Mm -hmm. you know, I can work less and still be able to save some money because the cost will be a lot less. And so, yeah, yeah. If, you, if you've never thought about being a digital nomad for that, from that aspect, it could be a way to save, but also see the world. Yeah. One of my British <laughs> nomads was saying that he worked for a British company for two years, completely remotely. And he traveled around Latin America. And then after that, he went back to um, UK after two years of travel and work. And he realized he could save up enough amount of money to purchase a house in UK. <laughs> so wow. imagine, yeah, like you make money from like with, I think I would say um, dollars or euro. Then if you travel around Latin America or Southeast Asia, then you can actually save a lot of money. 
You definitely can. Yeah. Well, Akina, thank you so much for sharing your story. And it's really inspiring to hear how, especially you're in, you were in a society that is just used to work, work, work and not leaving and working remotely. But I think things are changing and you're proof. And I hope you inspire so many people from Japan to start considering this lifestyle and then taking action, like we said. Yeah, that's true. Taking action is the most important thing. If people want to follow you, where can they go? Um, I have a website uh, called nomaduniversity.world. And you can also find me in Instagram. It's be Akina Self, B-E, Akina, A-K-I-N-A, and Self, S-E-L-F. All right. I'm going to put the links to all of that on the, the schooloftravels.com website. And Akina, thank you again. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Yes, thank you so much too. Thank you for having me. And it was so much fun to talk to you. Enjoy your last week in Buenos Aires. Yes, I'm already missing. Yes. (laughs) Thanks again for sharing your incredible story with us, Akina. I was so inspired by Akina's spirit of pushing against the norms in her society and following in her family's footsteps of finding her own place in the world. If you've been wanting to change your situation in life for a while now, and you feel like you've been putting it off for too long, maybe Akina's story can help you to take action. Listeners, I also want to announce that I will be releasing a part two of my interview with Akina, where we will discuss being a digital nomad in Japan and the best places you can stay in this amazing country, which we hope will be opening up its borders very soon. So stay tuned for that. I will put the links to Akina's social media on theschooloftravels.com, along with a link to more information about the Peace Boat and Akina's podcast, Nomad University. That's going to do it for today's episode. And until next time, listeners, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay tuned. Thanks for listening to the School of Travels podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to subscribe and leave us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to The Sam Chase for allowing us to use their song, In a Perfect World. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode, and remember to always let travel be your teacher. If you keep your options open, there are places you will go. They will treat you like the kings and queens your parents thought you'd be when you were born. You'd see it all with your head up standing tall, and you'd look back and think it's funny how you spent your time and money in